Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. One of the things that happens when you belong to a religious order is that you, you get to do a lot of things that you never thought you would have or do, and a lot of times they're things that you don't want to do. <laughs> but being a postulator of causes for canonization uh, has been very interesting. And blessed Michael McGivney and then um, Rose Hawthorne, who I, and this is just to warn you about what I'm going to say. And then Father Paul of Graymore, which you probably have never heard of. You've probably never heard of him, but uh, now I'm just beginning to be the postulator for the cause of Bishop uh, James Anthony Walsh, who was one of the founders of Mary Knoll. And I don't know if any of you would even know what Mary Knoll is. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Direct, we beseech you, O Lord, all of our actions so that with wisdom and right judgment all things may begin in you, and in you come to perfection through Christ our Lord. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I mentioned the thing about postulation because um, my opening comment is I, I was reading a, recently a biography of uh, Rose Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, whose cause I was the diocesan postulator for, and her cause is now in Rome, being examined by the uh, Congregation for the Causes of Saints, and actually it seems going well. Uh, but I was reading a, a, a recent biography of hers entitled, To Myself a Stranger, and it stirred up in me um, aware, the awareness of how difficult it is for moderns to um, understand who we are or to understand how we should uh, present ourselves or express who we are. And it brought to mind a memory that, uh, of a number of years ago when I was visiting my family after one Christmas. And it was at the time when, uh, you would, you're all too young to remember, but the, there was a, what was called a camcorder. That is, the, the, when video, video, videotaping first began, you had this camcorder that you held on your shoulder and you videotaped your family and all the events, and then everybody sat down and watched it. And that's what happened this Christmas. The family, I'm from a big family, and so, you know, everybody was together, and this, one of my brothers became the, the expert, and then we all sat down to watch it, and everybody had the same reaction. It was like, is that what I really look like? I mean, you know, am I really that horrible? Uh, and uh, so we had a unanimous decision. 
that in the future, any videotaping that took place would only be from the neck up, and all side views were forbidden. <laughs> and it brings to mind what I don't know if you've ever had the experience of looking in the mirror, you know, quite accidentally or and, and, and not in a way not looking, not recognizing yourself in this sense, that sometimes you come to see that the way you look doesn't correspond with what you're feeling inside. It may be that you look great and you're feeling lousy, or it could be that you're looking pretty ragged and you're feeling great. It points to this, uh, well, the phrase that was used to describe Rose Hawthorne's life, to myself a stranger. And this is a real, a very important insight for us if we're going to talk about prayer, because I can tell you a good bit about myself. I can tell you my name, my address, all kinds of statistics. I can even give you my social security number, which I will not do, because I know how dangerous that is. But I really can't tell you who I am. And I can't tell you who I am because I'm not sure myself. And I think that all of us, all human beings, spend our lives looking to discover who we are, and we all long for somebody who's going to, we're going to meet someone who will know us and accept us as we are. And yet, whatever kind of friendship or relationships we develop, they always fall short of this, this, this hope and expectation that we will meet the one who will choose us, will understand us and accept us, will love us, and whom we can love in return. The reason, of course, for this uh, gaping hole in our lives is because we have been made by God for himself. And we will only really ever be known when we awaken in eternity and Christ meets us and speaks our name. I, I, I think that that will be the first time that we'll ever hear our name spoken by someone who really, as we say, gets me. That's the phrase that they use today, you know. He really gets me. Well, God is the only one who really gets me. And, and so it is this kind of um, incompleteness that is part of what, what stirs up the hunger for meaning in our lives and the hunger for prayer, which should ultimately be the expression of... Um, of, a, 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 of, a, of a hunger for God because he's the only one who, who really loves me unconditionally. The truth of the matter is that even if you have a very intense and perfect relationship in marriage, that it always falls short. There's always some part of you that your partner, your spouse, doesn't quite reach or doesn't quite accept or quite understand. And so marriage becomes, as any other vocation, living both with the beauty of the complementarity of the spouses but also with, um, uh, no matter how intimate the relationship or perfect the friendship, there's always this falling short. And this is what prayer and the relationship with God is about. It's filling that hole, which can only be partially filled here in this world and will only be completely filled in the next. And so when we talk about prayer, uh, whether it's liturgical prayer or private prayer meditation, we're always talking about something that we have to move towards knowing that it will not be the complete solution to that sort of solitude that we have within ourselves. Well, what does all this have to do with prayer? It has everything to do with prayer because prayer is about our relationship with God 
especially our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as I say, it is only Christ himself who really understands, accepts, and loves us as we are, and wants us to love him as, as we find him out of the poverty of our own incompleteness. So often Christian people think that they can only love God once they have straightened their lives out, once I've gotten a good spiritual director, or once I've gone to confession and really come clean, or once I've made a, a real retreat and become spiritually enlivened, then I can go to God. When, of course, this is the great lie that the devil tells us. That is, that God's love is conditional. When I have my life wrapped up in a beautiful package with a bow that I can present to God and say, here it is, I've kept all the rules, I've been a good person, love me. And of course, this is, it's an utter fallacy because he loves me as I am. And as the Gospels tell us clearly, it's the poor, the weak, the blind, the sinners that Christ came to save. And strangely, it is difficult for us to accept the truth that it is in our brokenness, in our poverty, in our wandering around sometimes in, in, in a sense of, of, of meaninglessness, that we are the clients of the kingdom of God. Recently, someone said to me, I just don't love God as I should. And I said, yeah, well, yeah, what's, what, what, what are you surprised at? Well, I mean, I should love God more. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. I mean, uh, the point, the, the question is not, do you love God, but does God love you? And do you, will you accept that? You're the unloving person in the relationship, and he's the loving person in the relationship, and you have to come to, you have to, come to terms with that. So, you know, to be worrying over the fact that you don't love God, everybody knows that. I mean, <laughs> I know it, you know it, God knows it. <laughs> Probably most of the people that you live with know that you don't love God as you should. I mean, who do you know that's really perfect? No, it is true that we give one another often empty compliments. You know, you're such a good person. You're really kind. Blah, 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 blah. You know, St. Gregory the Great, of course, in his pastoral rule says that when you preach a decent sermon and you come down out of the pulpit, that's the most dangerous moment in the spiritual life because you might believe the good things that people tell of you. And in fact, most people say good things to you because of what they want to be or appear to be rather than because they see the good in you. Because we're all so, the, the, the consequence of original sin is this tremendous egoism. As I often say, I'm my favorite person. Nobody loves me like I do. I understand myself. I accept my, why don't, why don't the rest of you? Uh -huh. And people will tell you why they don't. So that you see, the, the question of prayer is to address the incompleteness not the completeness of the human person. Jesus Christ, the one who, as we say, gets me, was a man of prayer. And that's really where we have to start this morning. Jesus was a man of prayer, and it was his disciples who came to him and said, teach us to pray as John the Baptist's disciples taught him to pray. If prayer is a relationship, and we believe that it is, we say it is the raising of the mind and the heart to God, or it is opening the heart and the mind to God. What was the relationship out of which Christ prayed? What was the prayer of Jesus Christ about? And I think that this is really the key to understanding anything about prayer in the Christian tradition. 
The prayer of love and obedience. The prayer of love and obedience that rose from the mouth and the heart of the Son was directed to the Father. The prayer of Jesus Christ is that prayer which rose from Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, to God, his heavenly Father. And he invited his disciples and his apostles and disciples, when he invites them to pray, he, he invites them to enter into that relationship which is his. Just as we are baptized into Christ in his passion, death, and resurrection, he invites us into that relationship which is his identity, the only begotten Son of the Father. And he teaches us to say, Our Father. Significantly, he invites his disciples to say, when you pray, say, Our Father. And he also invites them to take up his cross, take up our cross, take up my cross, take up your cross, and follow him. And the two invitations are inextricably linked together because they are inextricably linked to, in his relationship to the Father. He names God as his Father, and he obediently loves the Father through the mystery of his cross. And so if you're looking for meaning in life, we have to begin here in these invitations that Christ issues to his apostles when they ask him to manifest to them what it means for him to be a man of prayer. When Christ uses the title Abba of God the Father, he turns a form of address into what is more like a nickname, because Abba does not really just mean father, it means it's closer to something like dad or daddy or dada. It suggests an intimacy and a familiarity that makes possible to think of this relationship with the father as reciprocal that the Father not only manifests himself as the Abba, but he invites us to love him back as the Son, as the child, as the one begotten in his love. He invites his disciples in their prayer to a relationship of familiarity and intimacy and reciprocity that was unthinkable for the pious Jew at the time of our Lord. In calling God Abba, Jesus reveals that he was never to himself a stranger. He always knew who he was, for he knew himself to be perfectly loved unconditionally by the Father. Jesus, you probably have noticed, is the only one in the whole Bible that is a free person. He's the only one that has the interior freedom to be himself at every moment. He never has to prove himself. He never says or does anything to assure the Father that he loves him, that he will obey him, that he is here to accomplish the mission given to him. He is always utterly secure because he was, as Sister mentioned last night, he was always ad patrem. That's really the key to the life of prayer that Jesus Christ was ad patrem, and Jesus Christ calls us to become men and women who are also ad patrem by living in him. Jesus knew perfect trust and complete acceptance because of the perfection of love that flowed to him from the Father and that he returned to the Father 
expressing it in the obedience of the cross. So Abba suggests love and intimacy, and the cross suggests the perfection of love through obedience. Once we are baptized into Christ, into his passion, death, and resurrection, we partake of the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. As baptized Christians, all that we do is done in Christ. Each time we pray, we are entering into the mystery of that hidden, secret relationship of prayer that goes between the Father and the Son. Their mutual love and understanding, their mutual knowledge, and their mutual acceptance that goes from Father to Son and from Son to Father, Son to Father, is so dynamic that it becomes someone, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power of love that goes between the Father and the Son. And it is that Holy Spirit who draws us into that triangle, that trinity of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you do not understand this, you will never comprehend what it means to say that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you and is actively in your life when you are praying, even though you don't know what he is doing in your soul. The Spirit is the love that goes between the Father and the Son, and so the prayer of Christ is properly the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, you might say, carried the movement of love and surrender from the, from the Son to the Father and returned that to the Son in preparing him, sustaining him, and perfecting him in the mystery of the cross and then the, his death and resurrection. The fathers of the church believed that the prayer of Jesus in his sacred humanity was the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit carried the prayer of Christ to the Father and returned the same from the Father to his beloved Son. For the fathers of the church, of course, our prayer is the same prayer as that of Christ because we are in Christ, you see? And there is, in a way, a kind of double movement because what you and I call prayer, and here we're talking about as Sister was last night, we're talking about meditation. We're talking about mental prayer, and I'll say more about that in a moment. But prayer really is, in many of the thoughts of the Fathers, the possession of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you do or I do. That's why they never use the personal pronoun, my prayer, our prayer. It's really, it's the, it's, it, prayer belongs to the Holy Spirit, and when we pray, we are really simply preparing ourselves for the Holy Spirit to pray in us as St. Paul witnesses. That is, that what we call prayer is really trying to remove all the obstacles, trying to make ourselves more supple, more sensitive to the movements of the Spirit, who is always praying within us. Indeed, there are some, uh, some great writers in the tradition who would say that, that the ceaseless prayer that is the ideal of the, uh, of the New Testament the ceaseless prayer is, is, is a fact for anyone who is in the Spirit, for anyone who is in the state of grace, because the Spirit is always busy there praying within us. So that what we call prayer is really not truly prayer so much as it is our way of getting ready for, 
trying to be responsive to and supple to the movement of the spirit within. You might say that the prayer that, that in the life of prayer, the Christian is confronted with another way in which he or she is a stranger to oneself. Because you don't know what's going on. The Holy Spirit doesn't manifest to us what's happening in the life of prayer. And so there's a mystery to it. And so, you know, you can be a man or a woman of prayer and you pray day after day and you don't you say to yourself, I don't know if this is working. I mean, nothing's happening here. You know? You could say, well, as we would say in the you know, tradition of the spiritual life, maybe you're in a spirit of aridity, dryness. Or, you know, this is a time of purification. I don't know. Who knows? Now, you can be busy, as some people are, taking your spiritual pulse. You know, I was talking to a young man the other day, and he said, you know, uh, I said, well, how is your life of prayer? I, I think it's really good. I'm in contemplative prayer now, he said, and it's, it's really helping. So I said, well, that's great. Who is it helping? Well, uh, well, I guess it's helping me. I said, oh, really? Well, that's good. Uh, is there an option? I mean, was there somebody else that could have helped? Well, uh, I mean, uh, well, how, how, is, how is it helping? Um, well, I, it makes me feel more peaceful. So the gastrointestinal system becomes the measure, you see? And isn't this the problem that we have sometimes that it came up last night, you know, feelings, emotions. So as a lot of times, this is more true perhaps of millennials and Zijan people, but, uh, you know, I've prayed about it and I really feel at peace. Ah, wrong. <laughs> you, you can't trust that. I mean, you know, uh, maybe I feel nervous too. Does that mean I shouldn't do what I think the Holy Spirit wants of me? Sometimes prayer takes us into turmoil. It isn't always that, you know, that you, you feel secure about it, you feel good about it. I really, just, just recently I was talking to a young um, uh, seminarian, and he said, you know, I'm really thinking about leaving the seminary. I said, well, you know, what, what's, well, you know, when I'm praying, I, I just, I'm no longer at peace about being in the seminary. I just, it, it always leaves me upset. And I said, well, maybe that's because you're not living uh, according to the way that God wants you to live. Maybe you need to live more intensely the spiritual life. Well, no, he said, I, I, I just always know when I'm not at peace what I'm supposed to do. Good luck. You know, because you, that's like playing pin the tail on the donkey. You know, you're putting on a blindfold. To myself, a stranger is true for all of us. The life of prayer does not guarantee that we're going to be doing the right thing. It guarantees that we are surrendering ourselves to the mystery of God's action and grace. And it is a kind of guarantee that he will manifest what he wants from us or of us, but probably not by giving us uh, you know, a peaceful stomach. I mean, if you just, just because you don't need Pepto-Bismol, it doesn't mean that you're on the right track spiritually. You know, because, as Sister indicated last night, it's the whole person. It's the head, the heart, it's everything. Within, prayer within, means that prayer begins in the heart, I grant you, in the very depths of our being. But this requires a certain self-acceptance and a willingness to live, to, with, to live with and to endure the mystery of who we are, the mystery of our humanity in Christ. The most ancient definition for prayer is prayer is the raising of the mind and of the heart to God. This suggests that people probably pray often throughout the day. You know, people say, oh God, 
help me or thank you, God. Or, And this is a, a very important kind of prayer, a spontaneous prayer. And then there are the prayers that we say, you know, like people will say the rosary or the angelus or novena prayers or morning and evening prayers. These are all prayers. Then there is the privileged form of prayer that Sister is going to talk about later today, the, 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 the prayer of the church, the divine office or the liturgy of the hours. But we are really talking here about um, that prayer which we call uh, meditation or mental prayer, or sometimes it could be called the contemplative prayer, some people do. Meditation or mental prayer is the dedication of a period, a substantial period of time, each day to conversation with Christ, an exchange between the believer and God. Now, if you peruse the books and articles about prayer that are being published today, you will likely discover that most of what is written is about the experience of prayer or the kind of prayer, how to do it, what it's like, how to confront the difficulties or the pitfalls. We know that meditation or mental prayer should flow from liturgical prayer, and we know that it should prepare the mind and the heart to return to its source and its perfection. But spending time with God is not easy. Now, the, the book that we've given you is Thirsting for Prayer, Jacques Philippe. Now, if, 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 he has another little book called Time for God. I suggested, uh, Sister and I chose this book because Jacques Philippe is one of the most um, popular and, and probably trusted authors that talk about these things today. But you see, there, this is not heavy, this is not heavy lifting. I mean, you know, this is a skinny book. And I'm not, uh, I'm not just against skinny people because I'm fat. <laughs> but, you know, it tells you these are not great tomes about prayer. They are really beautiful and authentic expressions of, of one person's experience and how he's trying to communicate that authentic experience uh, to others. But prayer, you see, is really, when we begin to, um, to pray, there's one thing that we have to face. And that is, rather than, to the, than address the how to pray, I want to speak about the critical issue that many authors, writers, practitioners of prayer gloss over or ignore. And that is the fact that I'm a human person. To become a man or woman of prayer, I must understand what it means to be human. Without a clear understanding and acceptance of the complexity of the person, it is not likely that I will persevere in the life of prayer, nor come to know the intimacy with God that a life of prayer promises. We might take the model used by the early authors who speak about prayer. For them, to understand ourselves, we have to respect the fact that each person is possessed of a mind and a heart and feelings. The mind gives us the ability to know things. The will makes possible a choice to act or not in response to what we know. And the emotions are the feelings that rise up within us as we are knowing and choosing. And we might add that the imagination provides the concrete scenario that we often need in order to make a mature choice or to think an issue through in a complete way. 
The intellect and the will are always interacting. The intellect moves the will to make certain choices, and the will acknowledges the truth of what is known and makes choices accordingly. However, in the wake of original sin, the cooperation between the mind and the heart is wounded. The will can be in opposition to the mind. We can make choices that are opposed to what we know to be right or best or good for us. Emotions, feelings, further complicate matters. We can make a choice that we know is contrary to what we know to be good because the promise of an immediate desire for pleasure or a sense of well-being. Feelings can dull the mind with attraction to what seems to be true or good, but in reality is not. Feelings can confuse the will, suggesting that a choice should be made for what will intensify pleasure and apparent happiness will be produced rather than following the reasons put forth by the mind, the reasons, the intellect. So in the early authors who speak about prayer, there is this conclusion that the human person who engages in prayer must take into account his or her human nature and realize that the praying Christian must sort out what is true from what seems to be true because emotion can often deceive. Consequently, to speak of becoming a man or woman of prayer requires the engagement in getting to know one's humanity, getting to know oneself. This is what we call humility. This is the seedbed. This is the ground of all spiritual life. That is that we have to find out who we are. And often that means that we must come to face the fact that to myself, I am a stranger and probably always will be. If one is to know the truth about oneself, oh, the, the truth about the self as we stand before God is humility. Without humility, there can be no real prayer. The danger is that we fabricate a relationship with God that does not come from me as a person, but me as I would like to be, or as I would like to appear to be. Authentic prayer requires a certain amount of personal authenticity. One of the ways in which you might simply, you might think about this is when you look through the day so far or the, your last two or three days and, and, and figure out how often you thought, if I do this, they'll think that. If I, do, if I go this way, she will think such and such. Or how often in your life in these last few days have you thought about how you should be responding to what others want so that you can appear to be a success or good or cooperative? It's an important issue. Getting to know oneself is basic if one is going to engage in daily prayer. As one of the fathers of the desert puts it, most of us would rather appear to be good than to actually be good. And, of course, the conclusion of that, that, that saying is that if we spent the energy and time actually trying to be good, rather than trying to appear to be good, we would open the door to happiness. But instead, we make do with living for the image that we project, or how successful we will be in the, in the, in the eyes of others. 
I remember as a novice, we were told that if we looked, if we looked at the crucified Christ, we would be happy. But if we turned our heads and looked at our neighbor, our brothers, we would not be happy. And sadly, through many years of experimentation, I found that to be true. Because, of course, this is one of the, one of the, one of the immaturities of, of, of being young. That is, that we look to others for the measure of who we are. The life of prayer means that this has to be confronted. It has to go. I have to begin to realize how often I live for someone else's expectations. I can't kill that off, but I can acknowledge it. And that's what humility is. It's living in the truth of it. It's not being cured. It's not having successfully become virtuous. It's living in the truth that I'm not virtuous. And that God loves me as one who is unvirtuous, that is filled with vice and sin and deceit. I was recently talking to someone who was um, describing uh, um, a, a young person, a, a young woman, actually. This was a friend of our, uh, his. He was telling me about her and uh, he said, oh, you know, she's just so innocent and so good and so pure. Father, isn't uh, you've met her. Don't you think that's true? I said, well, no, I don't think that's true. You don't. I said, there's no such thing. I mean, you know, we're all twisted. The human heart is black. I mean, you know, sin has infected all of us. You can dress it up. I mean, you know, <laughs> you can make it look good. But, I, I, you know, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I'm sure I do at the moment. But, I mean, you know, you have to face the reality that, that all of us, we may have successfully projected this image of being a good person, but we're not. Now, recently, one of our own brethren, I was talking to him, and he said, you must think I'm a terrible person. I said, I do. <laughs> he said, well, well, I mean, you do? I said, oh, for sure. He said, well, I mean, why do you think that? I said, because I'm a terrible person. I recognize it. We all are. The beauty is not that I'm a good person. It's that God is good. God doesn't love me because I am good. He loves me because he is good. And it is his goodness that begets in me anything that is good. Whatever virtue I have, uh, been, I have attained in life, it's not because I've been successful in all of my efforts. It's because I discovered that God could beget in me the desire to be virtuous and give me the grace to actually choose moment to moment to be virtuous. And this happens, this is really the, the consequence of a life of prayer. It flows out of the life of prayer. No one becomes an habitual prayer without having to face both the truth of one's corruption and the glory of what God can do in us because God makes silk purses out of sow's ears. He takes what is miserable and weak and it is in our weakness and in our brokenness that we become the clients of the kingdom of God and he transforms us from within. Prayer is really about our interior transformation, but it takes a while. It takes a long time. It is, a, it is one thing to know the truth about myself. It is another thing to accept the truth about myself. Because I can know the truth, but I can always be pulling against the goad. I really want to be different. I've got to try harder. I've got to really make greater efforts. And this is very often what I find in talking to young people is the case. They're terribly disappointed in their failure to achieve success 
in making themselves into a virtuous person. It's the same thing that I mentioned earlier. You know, I don't love God. Of course you don't. I'm not virtuous. I know that. Uh, that we, we got that. The question is, will you let God love you and in prayer surrender yourself to the power of his grace, which will change you? This is why Gregory tells us that it is so dangerous when we are a success to believe the compliments that people give us. I can remember as a young priest when I, I was helping out in a parish and I was standing outside greeting people as we do, you know, after Mass. And this man came up to me and he said, Father, that was a fantastic sermon. And I had just been talking to my own spiritual director about this problem of believing the compliments that people give you. So I, you know, kind of took a gamble. And I said, well, what part of it did you really like? And he kind of looked at me. And he, he said, oh, the whole thing. He said, the whole thing. <laughs> I think he was a lawyer. <laughs> Uh, and, and to be honest, I probably couldn't have remembered what I had preached anyway, because I was in, in, in the moment, you know, my own emotions were. But so much of our lives um, are fictitious. You know, we, 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 we've produced uh, an image of ourselves. And the spiritual life is really like a surgeon. You, you take the scalpel and you have to cut clean and deep. It, you cannot change yourself. It's the fact that we can't that gives us the freedom to be loved unconditionally by God. Since most of us invest a lot of time on how we appear to others, how we're thought of, we can understand what the Desert Father meant when he claims that we would prefer to appear to be good rather than to actually be good. So often there's a tape that runs in our, in, in our heads, you know. I was thinking of this just recently because I was at a mass, a very uh, one of these big celebrations, and a bishop was preaching, and I was concelebrant and you know sitting there just looking very pious and recollected. But the tape was going, and of course the tape went something like this: Oh, why in the he- name of heavens did they invite this guy? He's very close to heresy. Well, he's not a Dominican. Uh, well, somebody should somebody should say something. I mean, this should not go on in the church, you know. And then, of course, I realize what I'm doing. I'm sitting there thinking about him. So I push the, re- the rewind button. And two seconds later, I'm thinking, you know, gosh, this is really bad theology. Now, what's underneath the tape that goes and whether I push rewind is there was really only one person in that church that should have been preaching that homily. Who do you think that is? Me. I mean, who else understood perfectly what was wrong with him? So I could have, as I did think, you know, well, the prior should say something to him. The rector of the shrine should say something to him. You know, somebody should tell this guy he's a loser. All these things that go through your mind, you see. And that shows you that in my arrogance and pride, I'm taking the posture that he can't tell me anything. And the fact is that even if he is totally stupid, and I wouldn't say totally, but he's a pretty dumb guy, theologically. Could he have a message that God wants to give moi, me? I think so. But without the humility to simply face the fact that I have to be taught by someone who is theologically, I would say, inferior to me, imagine. So I'm not open to what it is that God is offering. I'm living in 
the world of my own ego. And this is what the life of prayer begins to dismantle, you see. And one has to, if you don't understand this, you may expect prayer to be about consolation or an assurance that you're growing in the spiritual life. Or you may want to keep, keep taking your spiritual pulse. You know, this, this uh, axiom that people repeat, it's, uh, it's something that John of the Cross said, but he actually borrowed it from St. Ignatius of Loyola, that you never stand still in the spiritual life. You're always either going forward or backward. And so many people are constantly taking their pulse. Am I going forward or backward? I have no idea. I'm from a medieval order, and we didn't ask that question. <laughs> That's a 16th century question. And I, I, in my experience, I'm uh, you know, backpedaling a lot of the time, going forward a little bit. You know, I, I, I don't know. It's a mystery to myself, a mystery. I don't know. I have some clues, but I don't really know. And I have to be willing to let God love me as I am and let that become the springboard to him transforming me interiorly to be his obedient son. Can I live without the gratification, the fulfillment that I want in the acceptance and recognition of others? And can I live with that which belongs only to me? Am I prepared to meet the Lord in eternity as who I truly am? It's really all about love, of course. Every one of us wants to love wants to be loved. We long to be chosen by another, and we long to be the center of another's affection. We want others' attention and interest. Human relationships, even the most perfect, cannot give that loving completely for which the human heart longs. We have been made for eternal bliss with God, and everything falls short of that ideal or dream. The most common mistake we make as Christians, even as men and women of prayer, is that we believe that if we were better, we would know God's love here and now. We're disappointed that we don't love him enough. We think we will only be pleasing to him when we are better, when we pray better, when we behave better, when we give ourselves to others more completely. As I say, God loves us not because we are good, but because he is good. And the life of prayer is the journey into accepting God's unconditional love for us now as we are, and the promise that if we accept that love, we will be able to love him in return and to love others as he loves them. If you really want to be loved, if you really want to learn how to love, learn the way of prayer. Now, there is here one uh, important lesson that comes to us from the ancient tradition, and which is um, very much part of the theology of prayer in St. Thomas Aquinas. And that is that with any degree of humility that we gain, there has to come not just the knowledge about the self, but the acceptance of the self as we really are. And this is perhaps where most moderns have the, the most difficulty. Because a lot of times people can come to know themselves pretty well. They come to a great deal of self-knowledge. But there's a restlessness about it. They keep wanting it to be different. And so, because the culture has, has, has raised us to be successful, to be in competition with others, it's very easy for us to be in competition with ourselves. 
that is, with the ideal self that we imagine we could be and the real self that we experience ourselves. This, of course, is not a new idea. In the desert tradition, of course, the idea of there being two selves was very common. That is, there's the, the true self and the false self, or the real self and the ideal self. The fathers and mothers of the desert understood that this was very common, and it had to be, the false self has to be killed off. And that requires that we accept ourselves in the reality of our poverty, of our brokenness, of the problems that assail us by being the person that we are. Not too many years ago, I was assigned to work with a, I was actually a diocesan priest on a common project. And um, we didn't get along. It was his fault. At the end of it, he said, you know, you're very difficult. And I said, well, I, you're not the first person to tell me that. I, or, you know. So well, I need to sit down and tell you what I think of you. And so we did sit down, and he told me what he thought. Pretty devastating. He gave me a pretty, you know, went through everything that was wrong with me. And a lot of it was right, you know. So when it was finished, he said, well, what have you got to say? I said, well, I think a lot of what you say is true, and I, I'm really sorry. You do? Yeah. Well, why aren't you different then? In other words, why haven't you changed if you know that you're so difficult? And I said, well, I, I, I wish I could, but I don't know how to change myself. This is just, you know, love me, love my dog. Here I am. This is, this is all there is. You have to take me as I am. And uh, he was very upset, and so was I, of course. And uh, years later, uh, this, this happened about 10 years ago, and maybe eight years ago, I saw him again. Not a pleasant encounter. When I saw him across the, it was we were in the uh, the basement of a large church, vesting for a mass. And I saw him, and I thought, oh, I got to get behind some kind of pillar, you know. <laughs> of course, in my in my, with my shape, it's not easy to find a pillar that's big enough, you know. Uh, but I did avoid him for a while. But eventually, he came and tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, "Hi, how are you?" And I said, "Oh, I'm fine," you know. And he said, "You know, I owe you an apology." Really? He said, "Yeah, I was pretty tough on you." He said, "You know." It took me, uh, the, the year after we had, that, we had that conversation, something happened to me and I found out I was the same. That the truth about myself is something that I couldn't change. And he said, you know, I, I, I felt very badly that I had said what I had said to you. And I said, well, you know, it was a grace because I had to face, it was humiliating, but I couldn't pretend that what you said wasn't true. I'm imperfect. I'm not a saint. And this, the reason I bring it up is that not too long ago, um, we, were, we had, a, we had the, um, the ordination of our deacons over in the shrine, and we were all con-celebrating. And as I was leaving the con-celebration, this little woman, who sometimes comes here to Mass, pulled me aside, and she said, Father, I prayed for you during that Mass. You're so holy. I could tell how uh, recollected you were. You never looked up. You know. And I said, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but... All I could think about was getting out of these vestments because it's so hot down here. You mean you weren't praying? I said, no, I really wasn't. <laughs> well, uh, well, I, I thought you were a saint. I said, but I'm not. You know, I, I'm just who I am. And this brings me to the, the, the final uh, anecdote. A bishop was here. Oh, it was the bishop who did this, this ordination. And he said, he came into the reception and he said, I know you. I, I, I said, no, Bishop, you don't know. Your face is so familiar. What's your name? I told him my name. 
oh yeah, I've heard your name, but I know you. I, I said, Bishop, central casting, old, fat, priest, white hair. I'm everybody's pastor. You know, you, 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 you think, I mean, that's just who I am. He said, well, I don't think you should denigrate yourself that way. I said, believe me, I'm not denigrating myself. <laughs> it's just the reality. What are you going to, I mean, you know, what, you think I'm going to get tall and thin overnight? I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, you, you, you really, you've got to come to grips with the truth about yourself, but come to accept it. And this is, of course, one of the great moments in the spiritual life that the spiritual director looks for in development. That is that, you know, you, you, you see that a person comes to the point where they stop caring what people think, and so they can just be themselves. And this is a, this is a characteristic of, of contemplatives very often. If you visit a contemplative monastery of monks or nuns, in a way that's a life that specializes in producing men and women who are truly themselves, and in that sense, truly free to let themselves be loved. That's the goal of the life of prayer, that you would let yourself be loved and therefore let that love liberate you so that you can choose God in every moment, which is virtue, and that you can choose to love others as he loves them, which means that your life can be given away to others freely without counting the cost. So often when we look at the lives of the great saints and you, we marvel at what they accomplished, even physically, um, I'm thinking now of uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, uh, but even our own founder, St. Dominic, you look at what these people endured physically and you think they were just tough Europeans, you know, they're, it was a tougher age. I don't think so. I think it's the freedom that comes from not worrying about yourself. You see, when you stop being so concerned to defend or to project or to pretend, you can be available to God and it, it, you, 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 you don't have so much of the exhausting burden of pretending to be something that you're not or trying to be something that you can never attain. The freedom of the saints is, is a remarkable thing, and that's really what the life of prayer is intended to produce in us. And so, you know, needing the approval of others and hungering so much for acceptance, which is typical of modern people, is something that the spiritual life and the life of prayer begins to assail. It begins to dismantle it. Um, let me think if there's anything else I wanted to say. I think that's pretty much what I wanted to say. Can I ask if there are any questions that, uh, I don't know, people want to... Yes? We talked a little bit about compliments, and uh, especially like one of the most dangerous moments in the spiritual life for a priest, like coming down. Yes, uh, yes. What would be a healthy way to respond to compliments? Like, what is oh, thank way? you. Thank you, but you know that it's empty. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the inner self is free, you know. I mean, I love compliments, but, I mean, I know that it's, it's empty, you know. I mean, it is an interesting thing. I notice this, of course, with our young men. When a deacon first begins to preach, and we go into the sacristy after his first few homilies, he's waiting. You know, it's like, <laughs> is, is somebody going to say, great job, or you did well. And so when, when the whole community passes him by and nobody says, you did a great job, he's like, <sighs> you know? 
nobody loves me. Guess I'll go eat worms, you know? Uh, <laughs> now, we have some people in our communities that, that will automatically do this. I mean, that is, they'll come in and pass you by and say, great homily, thanks a lot. But it's just rote, you know? If you ask them what, what it was that they liked, they're like, oh, I, I don't remember exactly, but I liked it. You know, you were good. I mean, yeah. But this, of course, at the, at the beginning of the... Um, uh, Historia Monocorum in Egypt, the history of the monks in Egypt, there's that anecdote that tells the story where you have the Westerners going to the Eastern monastery to learn the way of holiness, prayer, asceticism. And when their visit is finished and they gather for the, you might say, goodbye ceremony, and they're talking to the abbot, the leader of the Western group compliments the abbot, congratulates him on the beauty and holiness that they found, and he goes through the list of, of all the wonderful things that, that, uh, that they've learned from the, the life of the monks, who are all holy and good and prayerful, blah, 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 blah. And when it's over, there's silence. And then the abbot says, it is a tragedy that your visit was wasted. Because you have spoken not to congratulate us, but to manifest to everyone your own spiritual insight and perception. Imagine. And you'd say, how rude, how true. And that's the same, it's the same insight, you see, that, uh, I mean, of course, you take compliments and you're happy with them, but you have to know that it's passing. It doesn't mean, and I mean, uh, so often you say things that you have to say because of a social, you have to fill a social space or you're awkward, you know. I know, I got post, let's go beyond. You were saying about projection of being virtuous. Now everyone is really a terrible person. Yeah. And uh, I stand by that. Many people who are virtuous, virtues are brought out through the grace of God. Yeah. I have known a couple of people who appear to always be virtuous. You said the magic word. Appear. Appear. <laughs> yeah. And they may be. But that's because grace has done something marvelous in them. You know, of course, this is, this is often the experience that our novices have or young people in the religious life. They've come from a world where people would say, oh, you're such a saint, you're so good. They are used to being complimented. And, you know, people think you're going off to become a Dominican and they see the good that you do. And you believe it. That's the tragedy, you know. I mean, people thought I was great. I was a good Catholic boy in the 1950s. I mean, I got all the merit badges. I did everything. I, you know, I behaved. I was a good person, I thought, until I became a Dominican and I had to face the real truth of what was down there. And uh, it's, it's traumatic in some ways, you know, but it's very important. Yeah. Is it possible, though, for someone who started out as Dumbo when it comes to being, uh, living a life of faith and what have you, be influenced by people like appear to be virtuous to take on the characteristics of uh, also appearing to be virtuous and as virtuous and part of the personality after time. Is that possible? I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, her I'm hearing you correctly. Are you saying, are you asking, is it possible for a person who is not virtuous to become virtuous and for that to become part of their personality? Oh, yeah, of course, that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. So you become more patient or, yeah. Um, how do you, 
How do you distinguish between a piece of oil and a piece of gas? <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't. Yeah, no, no, I, I understand what you're... Uh, the question is, how do you distinguish between the piece of the will and the piece of the gastrointestinal system? Yes, but you see, that's where the interplay between the intellect and the will is so critical. Because when you think about something and you try to separate out how you feel about it, and then you try to apply something more, uh, the, the virtue of prudence to it, you know, it, it, that's really, it's the question of whether or not you will let reason take the lead, or whether your feeling, your sense, will take the lead. And in this matter, especially when you're in the beginning stages, counsel, seeking counsel from another is very important. This is why wisdom is, you know, we, we have to have wisdom figures in our lives. We have to have people that we can turn to and ask for advice. I mean, so often I've had young people come to see me or in spiritual direction, discerning a vocation, and it takes them months to get, what uh, I would say to, um, what's the word I want? They, get, they, they have to get out of the addiction of thinking that it's down here that they have to feel the peace when it's really, you know, there's this valve here. Uh, and a lot of people have the valve closed. They think that, you know, thinking is up here and feeling is down there. There's, of course, another valve here that a lot of people don't uh, understand. Uh, you've got to open the valves. You have to let the, the dialectic between the intellect and the will operate. And the more you become a person of prayer, the more the Holy Spirit will offer a kind of um, insight or understanding that you can distinguish out, you know, feelings and imaginations from real reason. Um, so I, I'm trying to think if I could if I could come up with an example. Well, I, I yes, I, I remember when I was a young person, and I was my I'm one of a big Irish Catholic family. My eldest brother was also a Dominican. He's now deceased, but um, I, I didn't like him very much. Uh, and um, when I was discerning a vocation, if you want to call it that, I, I, I knew that I was, had a vocation, but I decided I did not want to be a Dominican because I didn't want to be with my brother. And I was all planned, I had all my plans set, and I was going to go somewhere else and do something else, and it was all very clear. And one day, it dawned on me, because I was, I was praying, actually, uh, and, uh, and, and, it, and for the first time it dawned on me, I don't know where this came from, well, I do know where it came from, but I thought, well, I wonder what God wants, and I, that shocked me, because I knew what I wanted. I knew what my brother wanted, and I, I don't know if I knew what my parents wanted, I don't think they cared one way or the other so much, but uh, I knew what I wanted, and then I realized that I probably have to be a Dominican. And that made me very unhappy. It, you know, relatively unhappy. I mean, I, it upset my gastrointestinal system, you know, because I had to face the fact that I was going to end up very much living. And it's so, it was ironic, but of course, God's grace. When I finished our philosophy program and I came here as a young student brother for theology, guess who was stationed here? My own brother. And not only was he stationed here, but he was the sub-prior, which means number two, and he was the procurator, so he had a lot to do with uh, managing the, the community. So I ended up right in his lap. Now, nothing could have... I mean, what a joke did God play on me, huh? Yeah. That's how it happened. 
Last question. Uh, Father, so kind of a two-part question. Um, prayer, can you elaborate on prayer begins in the heart? Yes. And um, on the vows and opening up the vows. Sure. The thing about the heart I'm going to take up this afternoon, okay? Because that's that's the real, that's a, that's a difficult question. Because in the early tradition, prayer in the heart or prayer of the heart or prayer from the heart is a very typical expression. But what it means, we have to explore. And I will, that's what I plan to do this afternoon. Uh, but the valves, see, we tend to compartmentalize our lives. So, you know, thinking is up here, feeling is down here, and then the whole integration of what we consider the baser movements. You know, a lot of people think that um, <sighs> sensuality is evil. By sensuality, I mean being a person, a bodily person. And there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of, um, what would I say, rigorism among, I would say, more traditional Catholics that, that they don't want to face the fact that you can't live without being a sensuous person, uh, a sensual, sensual, without living with your senses. And that would mean not only, and I'm not really talking here so much just about sexual things, though that's involved, uh, but it, this has to do really with the whole sexual orientation and, and transgender thing. Nature has given us, um, what would I call it, um, an urge to be, to be married. I mean, everyone wants by nature to be intimately connected to another person uh, and out of that to come new life. And you can't live without that, without facing that. And very often people try to when they think that the spiritual life eliminates that. It doesn't. It really doesn't. You have to, you know, the, 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 the marital urge is something, whether it's, I mean, this is why the idea that there are several sexes is so crazy, because it's the same urge that's driving everyone, no matter where, you're, where you think you're going to play it out. And so the, the valve is very important, that the intellect and the will and, and all of the, um, yeah. Anyway, I I don't want to Father, say anything shocking. If I may summarize what you said, just to see if I understand yeah. your answer. Okay, so so mind, feeling, bodily, and urges. Yes. Two valves, neck, and like waist. Yes. And yeah. all those are integrated together. That's right. They have to be. They have and you to want be. to open up valves. I think so. Yes. I don't mean, yes. Yeah. I, I don't want to. Yeah. Thank you, Father. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.